Hello, Bitcoiners. Welcome back to the show. My name is Ansel Linder. This is Bitcoin and Markets. Today, I have an interview that I did with uh, Christian from POV Crypto. Great new podcast. I think they're on like episode 30, maybe, or something around there. Uh, but they are, they have a unique show where they do, uh, they have one guy that's into Ethereum and one guy that's into Bitcoin. And so there's there's a good dynamic there on the show, and they kind of give it back and forth to each other a little bit. So uh, I I actually enjoy it quite a bit. And they asked me to come on and talk about Ethereum as money, and because David he's the Ethereum guy on the show, he uh, had an episode before this that was their arguments uh, for Ethereum as money, and then they invited me on to kind of talk about the uh, arguments against Ethereum. As money a few spots in here you'll notice that the sound wasn't so good and it cut out some of my s's maybe i was speaking into my microphone poorly or something um, but there's uh, several parts that i'm trying to say monetary confidence but it comes across as monetary conf and uh, so i just want to put that out there on the record <laughs> first first and foremost but yeah christian has been a longtime friend of the show and i really do enjoy their stuff so um you know pop them a subscribe also su <laughs> subscribe and share this this podcast around if you guys want really good in-depth market analysis so this is like a commentary on news items as well as some charts and some fundamentals uh, from all sorts of different parts of bitcoin not just like price but with uh you know charts of the hash rate and charts of the lightning network and etc etc then sign up for the free report that i put out every friday and you can do that at bitcoinandmarkets.com forward slash report and if you want to support the show, go to the website forward slash support. And there's lots of different ways to support the show. Appreciate all of you guys. Let's get into the interview. Can't believe we made it to episode 20. This is one of my favorites. We had Ansel Linder come on. Me and him we did our own kind of rebuttal to David's Ether as Money podcast with Ryan Sean Adams. I think it's one of the best ones that we've done. I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. I won't be partaking in the interview. It's just you and Ansel, so I'm going to have to wait for this one to come out, uh, just like everyone else. Enjoy the show, guys. All right, Ansel, really excited to have you on the podcast. I think I've said this many times on Twitter, but I'm a huge fan of the show, actually a patron of your show, but you are someone who has uh, really helped me understand cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. Why don't you introduce yourself to our audience, tell them a little bit about what you do, and uh, maybe we can dive into your history in cryptocurrency. Ansel Linder, um, I do a podcast that's and run a website. So uh, Bitcoin and Markets is my podcast that I've been doing for a couple years. I started it uh, because of the political debate that was going on in Bitcoin back in 2016. And I thought that uh, I had something to say about it. So that's why I, I wanted to start the podcast. And it's kind of grown and, and matured and, um, you know, pivoted a little bit. But the, the core is uh, talking from an economics perspective and a markets perspective about Bitcoin. Awesome. And Ansel, why don't you, uh, I mean, why don't you tell people a little bit about how you got to where you are and why you think the way you think? You've said multiple times on your show that you didn't always used to be a quote unquote Bitcoin maximalist. Yeah. Why don't you just jump into that? Okay. Um, well, I came from a libertarian upbringing, pretty hardcore, gold bug dad, and so I was very versed in that. Got me into Austrian economics and Ron Paul from a very young age. I mean, before I went to college, I was, I read most of the Austrian stuff before I even went to college. Uh, but then when I went to college, 
Yeah, I, I majored in economics. So I have a degree in economics, been investing in gold and silver for a long time. And then I found Bitcoin. When I when when people first find Bitcoin, um, they get really excited about all the op, uh, all the different opportunities and they want they think it's going to be really fast. Right. You get in and, oh, man, this technology is, is moving so quickly and this is going to be here tomorrow. And but it takes a long time. And so you kind of get and you learn about these other things like blockchain uh, seems appealing and maybe there's some altcoins that kind of seem appealing and so you, you the when you first get into bitcoin i think you get you get impatient and then you kind of look for the thing that's going to you know move immediately and so when i got in i got into the blockchain thing you know had had some crazy ideas for tokens and stuff early on that was mainly centered around counterparty and not, that was even before ethereum so a, as it went on you know i you start uh, analyzing all of these after you live through a couple cycles you really analyze all the economic arguments deeply. And uh, so that's kind of where I ended up as a maximalist here. Um, what's kind of funny here is I love that meme where it's like the four brains and you kind of start with Bitcoin mm-hmm. and then it's all these multi-coins and it's just Ethereum, Monero, Bitcoin, and then finally woke brain, just Bitcoin. And I make fun of David all the time. I'm like, you are at point number three. You're not quite there yet. And he, and he responds back, mm-hmm. no, I'm at point number five. But I, I just shake my head like, <laughs> no, not not quite there yet. But well, you got to catch yourself every once in a while too, because um, people will say, "Oh yeah, I'm a Bitcoin maximalist," except uh, Monero or you know some of these other projects. And so, yeah, even you can go back and forth between that position four and position three. I think position four takes uh, balls. It takes a lot of balls to. Just say, hey, I'm a maximalist. These are the arguments, you know. I mean, personally, I, I personally don't like to call myself a maximalist. I just like to refer to myself as a Bitcoiner. Yeah. And, and personally, I kind of have a contrarian view on most tokens. I don't necessarily think that they're going to be good money or necessarily a good investment. But I do think that they're actually good for Bitcoin. So when I see, you know, folks like Kevin Pham or other people on Twitter um, kind of talking about they hope, you know, your, tw- your coin dies, I don't necessarily <laughs> think that because... I think that Bitcoin's an anti-fragile system and confusion is good for Bitcoin. You know, when you have all these businesses, you know, investing in blockchain and blockchain is the underlying technology behind Bitcoin, like that legitimizes Bitcoin to some degree. And um, while it is creating confusion and people are bound to get wrecked and, you know, marketing spend is going to be lost, what's good for Bitcoin might not necessarily be what's good for individuals or individual investors. Yeah, I totally agree with that. There's two ways to look at it. You you have your humanity side where you're worried about the people that are going to get wrecked by Ripple and all this stuff. It it has to be this way. I I don't think it can be another way. Like, but you respond to your incentives. Bitcoin aligns everyone's incentives, and everyone acts a little bit differently. But uh, for me, I feel like I'm just motivated or or incented by the system to speak out against these scams, and so. Uh, but everybody else has their role. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we need educators out there to, you know, show people why we think that Bitcoin is special and unique and why not just some other protocol can be Bitcoin. With that being said, let's just jump into this conversation. I know that you listen to David and Ryan's podcast. Do you have some pointers that you kind of want to kind of start off with or i know i have my own ideas too here uh we can start on either foot um yeah why don't you lead us through it sure you know just to kind of cover some of the points that they made you know their investment thesis is that ether is a commodity money 
and that it has to become a commodity money and the, that the Ether community needs to start thinking of Ethereum as a money if it's going to succeed. And then they um, you know, walk through several points why they think Ether is a good commodity money, uh, several of those being, you know, one, it is being locked up and uh, the the uh, scarcity is being built up. Two, the system is being secured and has a history of being secured and um, in a proof of stake system will continue to be secured. It is already portraying aspects of, you know, being money in the MakerDAO system and other decentralized finance systems. They also kind of shed some doubt on Bitcoin being the only currency or being limited to gold because of, you know, the way it's being developed right now. They don't think that Bitcoin's advancing quick enough. They don't think that the main layer can scale. They went down a lot of different things. And, you know, some of those things I thought were good points. And some of those things I was like, man, you're a little bit confused. One of the one of the aspects where I thought that they are maybe a little bit confused is this general assumption that Bitcoin is not being developed. Um, so, you know, I know that this is something that you talk about a lot on Bitcoin and markets. Um, it's something that I constantly push against as well. Why don't you kind of jump into, you know, why that's a misconception, especially by uh, the altcoin favoring community? Yeah, I mean, Bitcoin is the fastest moving cryptocurrency out there. Just just today or yesterday, they a group of three of the core devs released this thing called Mini Sketch, And that's a library that they're going to be using to... Um, reduce the bandwidth needed in the Bitcoin network by up to 80%, up to 80%. The fact or the argument that Bitcoin isn't scaling or Bitcoin isn't, you know, advancing is garbage. It's absolute, absolute garbage. And Bitcoin has this, this philosophy of uh, layered scaling. I mean, you're very familiar with this. So layer one is slow and conservative. Uh, even though we have these things like mini sketch and other things that can be added to layer one and that layer one has increased, uh, was scaled with SegWit, right? We still, we have blocks constantly over a megabyte. So um, layer one has scaled to an extent and now they're building out layer two for other scaling. I mean, and it's so successful that these altcoins are going the same direction, right? So Ethereum is trying to do layer two stuff, even though for years at the beginning, it was, you know, everything on chain and, and we can do uh, decentralized computing for the world, like world computer. Uh, that whole idea is just so uh, deceptive. And I, I don't understand how anyone could have heard that and thought it was legit at the beginning. I was not there during the Ethereum kind of ICO and launch, but you were. Why don't you kind of talk about what you're thinking about when, you know, Vitalik and Co were marketing Ethereum? Well, you ha you only have a finite amount of time, so I looked into it. I didn't I didn't buy into the initial launch because I was already starting to go maximalist by that time. And uh but I had friends that got into it and um the the whole the whole thing that they were selling was world computer world computer world computer and that is like we're gonna have all of the world's computation on every single node and to me that was just like ridiculous from the get-go of course they've changed their narrative over the years multiple times but yeah that's that was my initial reaction and the whole time they uh, i mean icos weren't seen as being that shady back then Right, because it was, I think Mastercard or Master Mastercoin, yeah, was the first uh, ICO, and then Ethereum was the second or third, and they weren't super scammy yet, right? Uh, so you couldn't like look at it and be like, 
that's super scammy. Now we understand that that is a pure pre-mine and uh, all that stuff. But from my perspective at the time, I just, I looked at kind of the arguments and rationally thought about them and was like, this, this is never going to work. So right from the beginning. Yeah, I mean, and at that point, there was already a lot of issues with Bitcoin scaling itself. Um, so, you know, someone who was in Bitcoin, you could kind of see like, wait, how could this blockchain system do even more than just, um, you know, be an immutable ledger and be successful? You know, I can understand in hindsight why, why you were skeptical. So, you know, kind of really quickly, uh, one of the points that, you know, Ryan and David were making that didn't really sit that well with me was like this idea too that Ethereum is do is going to be better or just as good as Bitcoin at some of the things that Bitcoin does best, right? So at being a deflationary currency, at being immutable and being reliable and being something that's going to verify transactions, you know, across this massive community of decentralized finance apps. And all of those things were going to, you know, kind of happen in, you know, in a not conservative way of development, right? This idea that money could be something that we are reinventing completely without and and that it can be changed over time, you know, without disrupting the system itself. Um, And that's something that I kind of see a lot in the Ethereum community. And it doesn't necessarily sit well with me, um, just because I feel like money is something that we need to be able to rely on. Um, And one of the reasons that fiat doesn't work is because it's not reliable for the most part. Like, yes, we're in the United States. Uh, The US dollar is probably the most reliable currency out there from a fiat perspective, but the majority of fiat is, you know, really damaging to, uh, to the people that are, you know, forced to use it. Yeah. Well, this, this, I think is kind of the meat of the disagreement because I think it was David that said somewhere in there that Ethereum will just change the monetary policy to fit its needs at the time. And what is wrong with that? Of course you can't like these systems are so malleable, right? That you need to lock it down to build monetary confidence. It's all about monetary confidence. And so your, your your token cannot accrue value if you change the code. Yeah, they're, they're talking about, oh, but there's no reason that they would increase the, the supply. There's the, every, every change has been to decrease the supply. But that that is short-sighted because not only have they shown that they can socially hard fork for you know to change the balances in the accounts but like just think if a Vita- if vitalik or some of the other core devs they started this campaign like we saw in bitcoin like by Roger Ver that they need to change this monetary policy from to ev- to every block to a percentage right that's pretty inconspicuous but then they'll mm-hmm. say, okay, you know, but that will be an increasing amount every single block. And then the, maybe the next they'll say, oh, well, to ensure the stake, look at the stake is getting a little insecure. So what we need to do is we need to increase the block reward 1%. So from 2% to 3%. So it's not like they're going to come in there and like attack or straight up say, we have control. We're going to change the monetary policy to benefit us. No, it's going to be very, very subtle. And they're going to come in and um, make it political, make it a back and forth about opinion. What What is my Ethereum? Well, my Ethereum is different from your Ethereum. Let's vote on it, right? And so then they'll vote or do something silly like that, which they've shown the propensity to do in the past. Uh, So it's just, there's no way that the monetary policy is set. 
there's no way that they can have monetary confidence on that monetary policy. I did a poll on Twitter yesterday or two days ago, and I said, which monetary policy is, are you more certain of over the next five years, the Fed or Ethereum? And the Fed won 70 to 30. So uh, people do not know what's going on with Ethereum monetarily, and you can't build a monetary uh, confidence that way. Let's just take a quick step back. Like, why is Bitcoin special, right? Like gold, Bitcoin's monetary policy, its stock to flow, has nothing to do with what people want. And that's what makes it special. That's why yes. you can rely on it because it's pre programmed. No one is going to, in the Bitcoin community, is going to accept a different version of the software that is not backwards compatible. And that is completely lost in Ethereum, right? So just because Ethereum's monetary policy is quote unquote deflationary does not mean that it will always be deflationary. And if there's a precedent of changing things that, um, and, you know, essentially rewriting what is Ethereum every time you want to make an upgrade, that opens up an attack vector for any sort of social engineering attack, right? So while Ethereum is deflationary right now or becoming more deflationary, that can change, right? And ultimately with these cryptocurrencies, they are ones and zeros and they are balances on the ledger. So if the ledger in any way can change, then all of a sudden anything on the ledger can be changed just like any other code out there. So what makes it special? What makes it something that you can rely on to be money. Money is not necessarily about technology. Money wasn't necessarily what was the fastest widget back in the day. Money was just something that people came to because they could rely on it over time. And we think that as a software system, Bitcoin can deliver that. And it can deliver that because of how it's being developed and because of the way that people think about it. Yeah, interesting enough, I actually do think money is a technology. Um, I think throughout history, it's always been kind of the cutting edge technology because if it is at the very fringes of innovation, it's hard to copy. So uh, like metallurgy, right? That was on the fringe in the Bronze Age, was on the fringe of technology. And it's not any wonder that we started seeing metals being exchanged during that time because it was the cutting edge technology. And now in the internet age, right, we see internet money. So um, technology, there is an aspect to that. But yeah, it's all about monetary confidence, the Lindy effect, the shelling points, all of these kind of game theoretical things that work into this economic picture. Ethereum does not have it. I don't think they're ever going to come to a point where they're going to need to find out that Vitalik can change the monetary policy on his own. Because since they have already destroyed the immutability. I don't think they'll ever get there, right? So this isn't like that Bitcoin is better uh, than Ethereum in the long term. No, right now, Bitcoin is better. And Ethereum will not ever beat Bitcoin because it will never get scaled up and it probably will never even go proof of stake. But, uh, you know, the, the history has already sealed the fate of Ethereum. And so it might not even get to this future that we're talking about that they can change the monetary policy. I think we both have our, our doubts about proof of stake. And, you know, even if Ethereum does go to proof of stake, personally, um, I think that that actually breaks Ethereum completely. Just to take a quick step back, did you read that article? Uh, I think it was by Brandon, Qu Brandon Quidham. He did. He compared Bitcoin to mycelium. 
and a mushroom. I think, yeah, I, th- I listened to it on Crypt Economy's podcast. I believe he read that one. He did read it. Yeah, it, he, it, it was great. But essentially, the idea here is that Bitcoin is like mycelium. And one of the reasons why it's like mycelium is because one, proof of work, and two, because the system itself is, you know, it stays intact. So when you have these hard forks or these like upgrades, you essentially disrupt the uh, the cycle of that network growing. You're you're saying no. We're going to start a new network now. And socially, people can you know switch to that and give value to that. But the network itself has been disrupted and is now starting over again. Bitcoin is kind of like this organism that is constantly growing. And because uh, we never disrupt it, because we are staying on the same chain, and any changes that we make um, are the software soft forks or backward compatible changes, the system itself can continue to grow and feed and uh, proof of work is vital to that. So the food for Bitcoin security is electricity. And as Bitcoin, um, you know, consumes more electricity, you know, maybe miners get kicked out of certain regions, they're forced to new regions that, you know, are more efficient and have more electricity for cheaper. And it unlocks new resources as it grows out through the world and it builds out this network effect. That is something that makes Bitcoin, it's almost like a force of nature, right? So it's not just about, you know, humans deciding on what code is, but it's like this, it's like this organism that is growing and is interacting with the real world. And it's really beyond any single human being, or even a group of people to decide on what consensus is. Consensus is something that just emerges naturally in the Bitcoin system. I was tweeting with this guy, uh, Antopothesis or something like that on Twitter, I can never pronounce his Twitter name, but uh, he's, you know, clearly very invested in Ethereum. And he's constantly conflating the both both of them. He's saying, oh, Bitcoin's Bitcoin and Ethereum are the same in terms of how they're upgraded. Have you ever heard of a BIP or an IP? You know, they're the same. It doesn't <laughs> change. They change the same way. They're both decentralized. Like, no, they are not. They can't be they can't be the same way because Bitcoin is beyond human beings. It's like this force of nature. It's almost like it has become this digital gold that is and because of its proof of work and dedication to proof of work it's you know growing and it's feeding and unlocking resources in our physical environment yeah that's uh <laughs> i've said for a while that uh, bitcoin is alive right it's it's actually an organism when you look at the game theory of like look at upgrading bitcoin uh if the organism doesn't like that like the it doesn't make the organism grow bigger, then it will be rejected and it will just keep its steady state, its status quo, until it sees some other thing that will might make it bigger. And that, that kind of goes back to what we said about all the, the altcoin cycle was inevitable and was it beneficial? I think it was uh, because it kind of just, that's what has to happen. Uh, so that's the same thing with these upgrades. If, if it's beneficial, it will happen. Uh, the game theory works out that way. But yeah, there, there's no comparison between Ethereum's upgrade and culture, the culture around how they upgrade versus Bitcoin's culture. And maybe there are more quote unquote nodes in Ethereum, I, I, that's argue that's arguable because Luke Dash Jr. has it measured over a hundred thousand nodes, um, but uh, the official kind of quote unquote official statistics say around nine to ten thousand, and Ethereum has about that many uh, nodes as well. It's the culture, so they they're following uh, what's going on with the 
with Vitalik and crew, the Ethereum Foundation. I just saw an article that came out a couple days ago, and it was about this uh, getting rid of bricking all the ASICs on Ethereum. And they just had a meeting, like a call of a conference call with a bunch of people, and they decided they're going to brick everyone's ASICs. I mean, if that's not centralized, I don't know what is. I mean, maybe they'll have community discussion now, but it seems like everybody is in agreement <laughs> that needs to be in agreement that that, that kind of thing will happen. Uh, so yeah, there's the culture is definitely towards like, I don't know exactly what you would call it, uh, authoritarian or something like that over there in, on the Ethereum side versus complete anarchy on the Bitcoin side. Yeah. And I mean, I, I don't want to like say authoritarian democracy, whatever. The whole point is here is that um, <laughs> these networks, you know, the reason why Bitcoin is special is because the network itself kind of manages itself and people are just playing off of it based on you know their own individual incentives. With Ethereum, there's a lot more of this kind of tinkering and central planning that they're doing. And David and Ryan both just, they agreed that that's true and they were justifying it as necessary. I don't think that makes good money. I really don't. Like for something to be like a good, strong money, like our generation of people have not seen what a good money is because it's gold got censored. But gold emerged by itself through nature as the best tool for money. Bitcoin, its monetary policy is proven. You know, it's based off of gold. And uh, David has this tweet that Ethereum is trying to reinvent what money is. But that in itself makes it, you know, maybe, maybe they can innovate better than the proven history of what makes good money. Any misstep, which is bound to happen, sets it back. And all the while, Bitcoin is, it's validating blocks. It's just marching along. It's just steadily growing. And if something makes it better, just like you said, it accepts it. If it can find cheaper electricity, it accepts it. If it makes it worse, it rejects it and just sticks on the status quo. Bitcoin doesn't make mistakes because Bitcoin doesn't make decisions. There's no decisions to fuck it up. Yeah, it's, it's Bitcoin is the lowest common denominator and its effort is to bring people into that lowest common denominator. Versus Ethereum, you know, they reset uh, Lindy every single time. Uh, every single time they hard fork, they, they alienate some of their people. Um, I mean, the best example, obviously, is the uh, DAO hard fork where they alienated the Ethereum Classic folks. So every single time they hard fork, they alienate somebody and they make their consensus smaller and more centralized. Uh, where Bitcoin with, with soft forks, it's an inclusive way to to scale and it's a lowest common denominator you can trust that the consensus rules of today will be the same tomorrow and five years from now where ethereum you cannot trust whether their consensus rules will be the same in a month from now and god knows what it will be like in five or ten years so that's that's one reason why i uh, we might not even have to see these projects like get attacked or whatever they, they'll just kind of stay small and while bitcoin grows that's what i think and and eventually people will just lose interest and they'll buy bitcoin can we can we kind of touch on that a little bit more what do you think i mean personally i think that proof of stake is a sword that is going to kill ethereum you know based on what i can see um, proof of stake requires a lot of quote unquote wet code and it requires a lot I mean, and even again even vitalik says this Proof of stake will get attacked and then they will all come together and then, you know, fork out that attacker and then 
you know, have a new fork. That is what's called wet code. That's called politics. We already have political money. We're trying to defeat political money. So if something has this social consensus layer to it, you know, I think it's not going to compete. It's not because people, you know, people, it's going to be worse money. Eventually, like you said, people get isolated, people get forked out. You know, you can't represent everyone in your vote. Um, and it, you know, it's going to hurt itself. So, um, you know, the, what, what do you think, you know, what do you think are, you know, the biggest factors that are going to constrain Ethereum and prevent it from growing? Well, I'm writing this, I've been writing this article for a couple of weeks, uh, trying to get, trying to make sense of my thoughts here on a similar subject with, uh, I want to describe Nakamoto consensus. And if you, if you, uh, have voting within like subjective voting within your consensus algorithm, you actually limit the scalability of that. And so, uh, because yeah, the proper place for this voting, right, is nowhere near the consensus stuff. It's in the social as the social consensus, like you identified. So I agree. I think that's a huge handicap. I, I think that just time, right, just time will show people that there's nothing to Ethereum. A lot of Ethereum people like to say, oh, there's so many developers, right? Well, most of those developers were working at consensus and they just laid off a lot of them. Another thing like Augur. I think there's going to be another round of layoffs, by the way. Yeah, probably. Inside Scoop. <laughs> oh, Inside Scoop. Okay. Um, yeah. And, and Augur, they, how many years, they were like the, the darling of Ethereum for a long time and they launched and they have seriously 25 daily active users, but they have 17 employees. So who is, who's really using Augur? Uh, I think it's probably they're doing their own thing over there. So uh, all of these things have no users. Um, and uh, another argument, someone was saying that, gosh, I can't remember what this was in reference to, but they were talking about the moat. You might have heard it on the podcast. They were talking about this moat around Ethereum. And that Ethereum has built this moat because uh, they have all of these dApps that everyone's building on Ethereum. No, there's, there is no moat. There is nothing to protect. I mean, these dApps have no users. There's no demand out there. The demand is for value on the internet. So it's interesting now that they're, they're starting, these Ethereum folks are starting to clue in to this monetary argument and why we need to, why they need to worry about it. Yeah, um, I've definitely been seeing a lot of, you know, people like Eric Connor um, and all these other kind of talking heads on Twitter that are really conflating what Ethereum does with Bitcoin's own features, right? Deflationary, permissionless, decentralized. And, you know, I just kind of look at them and like, you know, you can compare them, but there's no way that you can come to the same result with a completely different path. Yeah, I just I just don't think that it can be done. So how can Ethereum be decentralized if you can coordinate everyone together to update their software in a way that doesn't that doesn't create two chains? And yes, you know, they're going to argue that you can do it and that you can jump to the other chain. And even Eric Connor was saying, "Hey, this is the argument why miners are going to jump to the new chain because Every second, they're actually going to make more Ethereum. But I thought it was supposed to be deflationary. Like that, that math doesn't work out to me. And if you have to make that argument, and if you have to socially convince these miners to change, like you're going to lose some. You're going to lose some. And you know, again, like you said, you know, the way these systems work, every time you make a change that you know kind of isolates people and and pushes them away, 
you know, your your system is going to become more centralized and start shrinking. And even if you can, you know, spin up 100,000 nodes in Infura, you know, that, that doesn't change the fact that they're not independent people running these, you know, th- this software. Yeah, and everything gets more complex as well. Bitcoin strategy is simplicity, maximum simplicity. And Ethereum seems to be every every time that they run into some sort of hurdle, it's to add complexity. And that's that's just an accident waiting to happen. So I, I don't know uh, exactly uh, how long, like at the beginning when I famously on my podcast said that uh, Ethereum should not, when it was $12, I said it shouldn't be worth 12 cents. And I think that eventually it will get back there, but uh, it's just going to take a long time. Really quickly, uh, one of the things that I always like to kind of push back on is this idea that proof of stake is more efficient than proof of work. Um, and that's a reason why, you know, a really big reason why people in the Ethereum community are moving towards proof of stake. I have several reasons why I do not think that proof of stake can be more efficient than proof of work. Um, but I, I kind of want to get your take on what do you think is wrong with proof of stake and why do you think it cannot be compared to proof of work? Uh, proof of stake is uh, subjective and uh, proof of work is objective. Um, for example, the cost for proof of work is incurred before you make a block. Uh, the cost of the slasher protocol or whatever they call it, that's that's a, a cost after. And it's it's not connected to the outside world at all. So if, if I am a government attacker, say, or well-capitalized attacker, and uh, I, for, for proof of work, you have to burn energy that has real opportunity cost. Proof of stake, you, you don't have to burn. You, you have to just burn these tokens that really have no opportunity cost because, you know, it depends on what you value these subjectively at. So um, uh, I don't know. That's, that's my big thing. And also that I don't buy the whole idea that it is cheaper or that is less um, power. It, it consumes less power because um, uh, Paul Stortz, he has a pretty good write-up on uh, marginal cost equal, equaling marginal revenue. So there's no free lunch. It's not like you just do the right smart contract and you can create $10 worth of Ether and only spend one to secure your chain. Right. So there's there's no free lunch. You need to actually expend the amount of energy that you are getting the value back from the Bitcoin at that time. Right. At that time. Uh, we see this in EOS now uh, or a problem here with this in EOS is that they have this minimum. Uh, it, I know it's different, but they, they have this minimum value that uh, their block producers kind of need to keep their machines up and running and keep uh, up with the blockchain, it's not free. So uh, it, it's something around four dollars is their break even. They've been under four dollars now for six months, and a lot of their block producers have just stopped completely. They just turned off their machines because they can't. Um, they can't. It's not profitable for them to even produce blocks. So uh, yeah, I don't buy this. The whole argument that the security will decrease until. It matches, right? The rev- the the marginal revenue will decrease until it meets that marginal cost. I agree, and 
something that David brings up himself is um, he talks about when Ethereum, again, when Ethereum becomes proof of stake, that he's going to build this really nice computer, (laughs) his staking computer, and he's going to be running the staking computer, right? But the reality is, is that, dude, where are you going to be running this computer? You're plugging it into the wall inside of Seattle, Washington, probably an area that no miner could be profitable running their machine because there's no electricity cost aspect to how you can be competitive. The only, you know, the only thing that matters is how many tokens that you have staked on that machine, right? So where are all these people going to be running their staking computers, right? You know, these staking computers are burning electricity. I'm sure there's going to be plenty of Ether people running these staking computers in, you know, Los Angeles, San Francisco, other cities where that, you know, require that require constant electricity that are burning a lot of coal to maintain in those cities. But if you look at how Bitcoin mining is working, the cost of the electricity is directly associated with um, how competitive you are. And uh, if you uh, if you are using expensive fossil fuels, using fossil fuels in these major cities, you're not going to be uh, successful. You're going to you know be you're not going to be profitable because of Bitcoin's mining competition. It's driving these miners to find more and more efficient electricity to unlock energy where it was previously being wasted. You know, not in the cities, but in the middle of Alberta, where no one is using um, the methane gas that is being wasted from these these mining operations uh, to, you know, uh, Iceland and Greenland were previously exporting aluminum. Um, Bitcoin allows people to turn that energy that was, you know, lost or unlocked or locked up into security rather than operating these staking machines um, in any other jurisdiction where it might not be the most efficient place to do it. So this kind of idea that you're going to be more efficient because the security is not aligned with burning electricity is, I think, is it lacks, you know, these people are, are not using critical thinking. So what you're saying is that proof of work aligns people's incentives to become more efficient, right? So if you want to be competitive, more competitive, you actually have to increase your efficiency. You have to increase your innovation, et cetera, et cetera. Good things. These are positive things for society. And where on proof of stake, it's like the, the reverse. If, if you want to get ahead, you spam the network with really hard calculation problems or something, right? That max out the gas every single block to hurt this smaller marginal miners, maybe. I don't know. Uh, but you that is how you would become more competitive. It's uh, dis aligns the incentives Uh, and speaking of disaligning incentives let's kind of talk about who is going to be staking with bitcoin we know that bitcoin has been as fairly distributed as possible satoshi in the original genesis block uh the times chancellor on the brink of bailout uh, people say that that was a political statement but you can also refer to that as he was time stamping the block he did not pre-mine Bitcoin because he timestamped the Genesis block with something that happened that day. Who, whoever was mining at that time, they got the co- they got the coins, and those coins are not directly associated with the security of the network. If you want to secure the network, if you want to have right pr- privileges to the network, you have to sell your coins or sell other money in order to buy machines and invest in machines and invest in Bitcoin security um, in order to keep it going. And then on top of that. You're constantly, you have a fire under your ass forcing you to continuously reinvest in the network. 
do those incentives happen in a proof of stake system, especially with proof of stake system like Ethereum, where 70% of the initial um, supply was insta mined and sold uh, to the pre-sale and early people? Uh, I don't think so. Yeah, I agree. Um, and that, a little bit more info on that, uh, the Genesis block. Yeah, I, that that's an interesting way that you put that is uh, that was to prove that, say, if he were alone for the next six months, that it would have been able to prove that he didn't like insta mine it or anything. Um, so yeah, I think that's pretty interesting that uh, he timestamped that like that. And also, we don't know how many blocks he mined. Uh, we know that you know. I think it's for sure block number nine or something. Obviously, the Genesis block, which is unspendable, is his. And uh, I think probably everything before nine is likely his. But we don't know for sure. And uh, we do know that Hal Finney was mining by block 70. Yeah, it's it's completely different than the system of a pre-sale. And one, one thing that I constantly think about with the, the pre-sale as well is that um, uh, they need a way to get the distribution out there, right? So it's not only to um, make money. I guess people print print their print the money that that's half of their goal but it's also to um to have a distribution right and uh, in in an early network like let's say that ethereum were to launch fairly and start from block zero with zero ethereum issued have a genesis block without a pre-mine you know it would never get off the ground and that's because it's in the presence of bitcoin and the incentives would not be there for people to to mine it. Um, it. It would. I don't know how to explain that, but it's uh, in the presence of Bitcoin. Uh, it things have a lot harder time of starting fairly. That's why a lot of these things go to these airdrops or to these um, uh, to pre-sales token sales. Wait, so I do but have yeah. a question on that. Okay. Th there are tokens that are starting now that you know are fairly are being fairly mined. Um, you know, I guess Beam has a founder's reward every single block like Zcash, but, um, you know, they recently launched and they actually got significant hash on there. What algorithm um, are they and using? It seems like I think th they're using ETHash and oh, really? their GPU miners. So they're not competing directly with Bitcoin because Bitcoin has evolved to algorithm specific hardware at this point. So all of the GPUs on the market, um, you know, essentially are not competing with Bitcoin anymore um, or, you know, are not viable for Bitcoin anymore. But you know, they are technically fairly mining and starting that way. So I'm, I'm not sure. In 2016, Bitcoin was already on ASICs, right? Yeah, uh, they started uh, 2013 was when ASICs came in for Bitcoin. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I'll have to take a look at those those projects. Um, but I, I think there's there's got to be some um, either they're they're signing the blocks right centrally or something else because it's very difficult in this in this age of where everybody knows what's going on now uh, in bit with bitcoin it had the immaculate conception and nobody knew what was going on it had uh, what a year over a year with no price right and so it was this um kind of incubation period there's nothing like that now so a, a coin like beam i'll have to check it out and I bet they're signing blocks. Yeah, Grin's coming out supposedly in the next couple of weeks here too. Maybe something similar. I don't know. I could be wrong on this, but um, that's. I think it's it's very very hard to do that, and that that also makes you think. Um, I mean, 
it shows how Ethereum is impatient, right? They, they, they can't launch it fairly. They had to actually do the pre-sale and, and all that stuff. So, uh, I don't know. All, all of these things around the launch are kind of make Ethereum, like every decision possible, they made the wrong decision. If they have always made the wrong decision, <laughs> how do you think they got this far? Ponzi. I think it's a Ponzi scheme. I think that like all Ponzi schemes need a con man. And I think that's Vitalik. Um, or or Joe Lubin could be either one, um, but uh, yeah. So I think it's a Ponzi scheme that uh, had a lot of marketing and people were really greedy at that time. I mean, it started right uh, in the bear market for Bitcoin uh, in 2014 and 15, and so it got a bunch of people to kind of. It just happened to align at the right time. I mean, if it would have been if it would have launched in 2013 instead, uh, it might not have had the success on the pre-sale that it did or if it launched in 2017 i don't know if it would have had the success but it just seemed to have the be in the right time and then they you know they're always chasing the narrative um and they played up being number two to bitcoin and then there was people that came in that made money off of you know being the middleman like shapeshift being the middleman between ethereum and bitcoin um trades and so that they that's where this whole dominance index came from was these these middlemen that they wanted to pump up the the trading between these coins so that they could uh you know have this little duel going on and make money off of it uh, so there was a lot of profit motive in it and then on top of that we had the icos so 2016 people were looking for a plate something to do with their ethereum because there is no utility <laughs> so they were like what am i going to do with my ethereum well i can invest it in the dow that's really cool and then the dow can invest it in other projects and you know <laughs> more icos and so it just it was a ponzi it was a bunch of ponzis that was built on top of a ponzi and so it was very hyper explosive uh, i don't think I mean, just for that simple reason, I don't think it's going back to all-time highs or anything like that. Um, but there's many reasons why it's not going back to all-time highs. But yeah, it's a, a Ponzi on a Ponzi. <laughs> okay. I mean, I, th- I mean, I think that's interesting. I mean, I know that that uh, opinion is going to trigger a lot of our listeners. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, personally... Is that is that bad? Is that bad or good? I don't know. You know, uh, I think it, it it's good to be honest and to, to speak your mind here. Uh Again, I don't have what else. What else could it come from? What else? It it didn't come from usage, right? I mean, it didn't come from like Bitcoin had the uh, Silk Road. Bitcoin had other things that along the way that it was used for, right? It's used for censorship resistant payments from the beginning, donating to WikiLeaks. Um, the Cyprus thing really had a big boost because people were looking at it uh, as a uh, way to store your money outside of the banking system. So uh, it had usage where Ethereum didn't have any usage. Like the biggest use of Ethereum was reinvesting that Ethereum. It just, it's a Ponzi scheme. Yeah. I mean, if you look at all the ICOs too, the majority of ICOs raised their funds and then they would hire uh, someone else to, or they'd have a team that would reinvest into other ICOs. And um, it really created this inflationary environment in 2017 um, and obviously, we're bathing in that blood today. Um, as as well, have you? Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. No, I was going to say as, as these projects, uh, you know, are are dying down again. I think there are some, 
you know, valuable chunks here. And um, in the interview or in the podcast that we released today, episode 20 was Zach Prince, or sorry, Jesus, uh, was Zach Cole. Um, he talked about how he got into Bitcoin, but he really got into Ethereum because it was easy for him to develop and build on top of it, had a much lower barrier to entry to Bitcoin. So I think that that unlocked a lot of, uh, you know, excitement um, and it allowed people to, you know, to jump in. Essentially, the way I see it is with these system on systems on top of Ethereum and, you know, I'm not a developer, so I might be conflating it a little bit, but it really unlocked, um, you know, the JV and the and the frosh off. Um, people that, you know, weren't, you know, necessarily the best cryptographers in the world, you know, they were not going to be able to, they were not going to be able to commit code to Bitcoin. Um, Vitalik himself wanted to make changes to Bitcoin and um, was not able to. And that's why he built his own, um, you know, was part of uh, building his own system that he could um, have a material impact on. And, you know, I think that Ethereum could be good because some of these people might come back and contribute to Bitcoin in the future or, you know, could be, you know, transitioning today. Ultimately, I think when it comes down to competing as money, if you look at the world from an Austrian perspective, you know, there's only one thing that is going to be the most saleable good because, you know, again, this idea of the most saleable good um, has to come back to uh, there's going to be one thing that people want the most. And uh, we both believe that Bitcoin has those properties. Yeah. And I don't want to sound, I don't want to come off as just like kind of ad hominem bashing people, right? Because uh, I do say hard, hard things or, or hard to hear uncomfortable things, but I, it's because that's what monetary confidence is built off of. Uh, monetary confidence is not built off of everybody going through every line of your code and making sure that that is a really cool upgrade that you're going to hard fork in, right? It's built on, uh, you know, lowest common denominator brain out there that's going to uh, have confidence in this currency. And so uh, all of these ad hominems or all these kind of, uh, you know, talking about the pre-sale the pre uh, sale and the um, even the scams that Vitalik wrote uh, or managed before uh, Ethereum and, and how he acted uh, towards the Bitcoin core devs and all this, all that's fair game because that is monetary confidence. That is what this is built on. Uh, so I don't think it's necessarily out of bounds. And But there are, like you say, a lot of economic arguments too. Have you heard of closing the loop? Uh, no. Can you explain that? Yeah. So um, Zabo talks about this. Uh, when, when money evolves, uh, you know, it's, it's first as a collectible. You know, there would be lots of different collectibles and, and you might spend this, uh, your bead, your certain bead and that's a one-use type of money that you used it there. But where it really actually becomes money, where it takes off and where it gets all these network effects, is when you then receive that bead back again. So the actual economy has closed, right? The loop of the economy has closed. It's circulating money. And so when they talk about uh, the stake or even locking up uh, Ethereum in DAI or in the MakerDAO, uh, that this is going to be somehow good or, or make it have some sort of monetary aspect is the actual reverse, right? It's actually taking things, out, taking money out of the economy. Proof of work, you are, you have to spend your Bitcoin when you make it, right? Because you, you incurred all this cost and so you spend it. It automatically starts the loop. And uh, there is, it only has to be a minimum amount, right? Like darknet markets, uh, cam girls, um, you name it, that uses Bitcoin, and that loop can eventually close, 
right? And so this circulation is what, is what money wants. And uh, Ethereum, by locking stuff up in proof of stake or in the MakerDAO, it doesn't circulate. So that's it's kind of a backwards argument. It's kind of funny that, um, again, I think that David was actually one of the people, and maybe I'm giving him too much credit, who kind of pioneered this idea of evaluating dApps based on Ether lockup. Um, but in one of our podcasts, I think it was um, Proof of Work versus Proof of Stake, um, our episode where we kind of argued uh, the benefits of both. He talked about how you could get to this point where the majority of Ether is locked up. And I was like, that sounds like a dystopian situation for Ether. Yeah. If the best thing that you can do with your Ether is stake it, then, you know, what's the point? You know, uh, all the ether is going into being locked up. What is it being used for? So I think that that's pretty interesting. And then he talked about how the system is going to create more tokens if there's not enough people staking it to have optimal security. And, you know, and it will uh, mint to less tokens if too many people are staking it. So uh, so the reward is less. Um, but what is enough security? right? What is enough security? And how does the system know that? Yeah, And who decides that? Yeah, exactly. So um, I think all those things are interesting. I think with Bitcoin, it allows the market to find what the what the optimal security is, because at some point, ASICs, you know, are not worth running anymore, and people are going to turn them off, or your ASIC is not being uh, is not competitive enough, or hopefully we get to this point where where there's kind of this ebb and flow of, you know, ASICs being turned on and off and um, being used to offset to help power plants and other facilities are are unlocking energy be more profitable and more efficient. Um, I think that is kind of like the uh, the eye in the sky moment for proof of work and how it's going to um, really revolutionize energy on this planet. You know, I, I I just again have this these serious doubts about the central planning and who's going to you know design. You know, again with Ethereum, it seems like they're counting on developers. Uh, to design and iterate and create a system that is optimal, whereas uh, with Bitcoin, that is not the idea. The idea is, you know, the system itself is just interacting with the world and, and it's kind of paving its own way. It's allowing the market and it's allowing, you know, all these independent actors on the fringes to make independent decisions that ultimately go back into it. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, who, who makes the decision? Um, they've proven that they can do it, um, that you have to trust that they will be fixed in the future. That's another thing. I remember when Kyle Solani um, and Tushar Jane, they're the, what are they, multi-coin capital, and they went on to Epicenter Bitcoin, like the biggest Ethereum pumping show out there. He, uh, one of them was saying um, they're confident that everything that all the problems out there in Ethereum or in blockchain will be fixed in the future, right? They, they have this trust and they're not just even trusting like in a person. They're like trusting in magic or something like that. People in Ethereum can push back on that yeah. and say, well, Bitcoiners are trusting in developers to develop the Lightning Network and you know, do all these things. Why is Bitcoin different? Because Bitcoin at status quo is fine. Um, and you can you can use Bitcoin the way it is for 10 or 20 years and that eventually there will be somebody else that wants to build on it, right? And it's permissionless. Uh, they don't necessarily need to have a reputation. Maybe they build something and then some other developer reviews the code and, you know, it, it goes on from there. Uh, so it's... it's um, 
it's not centered around it's only centered around the developers if they need to actually do something if you're if you're requesting of them to please fix my chain or fix my network uh, then it, the developers are very central but if you uh, are happy with the status quo which most people are at this time at least i mean yes we'd like to see layer 2 get built out lightning network and all these uh, cool little add-on features on layer one, uh, but they're not necessary, right? And uh, uh, Bitcoin aligns everyone's incentives. If it has to be status quo for a while, it'll be status quo, but eventually somebody will build something else and and move on from there. And I also wanted to mention something about what you said earlier, where um, the guy you had on the podcast that you released today, uh, he... Yeah, Zach Cole. Yeah, Zach Cole. He was saying um, that uh, Ethereum was more approachable from a developer standpoint. I think that's a good point because it's a self-selecting mechanism. And Giacomo Zucco has said this many times that the top, top developers will be staying on Bitcoin and they'll be developing on Bitcoin while the people, you know, the other, like they're not necessarily uh, JV, but they're inferior to the top people. They're going to go to Ethereum and then also Ethereum wants to vote, right? So it's a self-selecting mechanism and uh, Bitcoin's lead extends, that type of self-selecting thing extends actually through through time. So um, Bitcoin's developers are going to continue to be more elite while other developers on altcoins are going to continue to, they might increase in number there might even be 10 times as many but they're going to be not able to work on bitcoin who knows if they will ever come to bitcoin but um you know i have faith that personally i i have faith that a lot of these uh, people working on altcoins kind of sharpening their skills eventually if they get to the level where they can work on bitcoin um they're going to rise to the challenge and they're going to want to work on bitcoin and, and lightning um like you said or lightning um i mean Again, I think Lightning is something that's different than Bitcoin, but it's you know very exciting. Um, and uh, a good way I like to think about Lightning and why it's different than uh, DeFi or whatever um, you know people are comparing it to um, on Ethereum is that um, you know all of these blockchains are triple entry accounting systems, right? So it's a it's an accounting system that every single change is being audited in real time by every single member of the network. And that's very, very difficult to scale. And why night light and why lightning is ingenious and, you know, other kind of um, channel type um, networks is that it builds a double entry accounting system on top of it. Right. So now you have a double entry uh, accounting system, which is, you know, working today and is proven today. And it is leveraging the triple entry accounting system um, without compromising the triple entry accounting system and without requiring the triple entry accounting system to scale to massive uh, proportions. Um, We're kind of getting a little long on the podcast, um, but there are a couple more points that I want to chime on. A lot of times in criticisms of Bitcoin, um, you know, people from these different altcoins are talking about Bitcoin can only do 500 transactions a day or something along those lines. But I think that there's a lot of mix ups and confusing definitions um, used in this space. And I have to ask them, like, what exactly is a transaction? Because a transaction in Bitcoin can have 
thousands of outputs, right? So one transaction can have massive economic value. Um, it's not just like one person making one, you know, going to the store and making one spend, and that's one of the 500 transactions. But you know, rather it could be um, you know a single transaction that carries 500 or a thousand different outputs. Um, and you know accomplishes a thousand different things. So a lot of times when we you know compare and talk about these numbers of how Bitcoin can't scale on chain, we got to have the same definitions. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, it's it's all about size. So that five hundred thousand number is off the average transaction size. You know, one input, two outputs, or something like that. But uh, so you, you can't have five hundred thousand transactions with a thousand outputs each. Um, you, you, it would be much less than that, but I agree. I, I, and I also think there's going to be a market dynamic here. So, uh, people talk about fees, right? Uh, are fees not going to be able to pay for Bitcoin because everybody's going to be using lightning network? Well, there, there's going to be a give and take, right? So, uh, if the fees are really low on Bitcoin, then it, more people will settle, and they'll open more chains or, or, or more channels. Um, and if it's really high fees, then people will put off closing or put off opening channels. So there's going to be definitely a dynamic that keeps um, the mempool relatively low uh, and the blocks full. Now, also, Bitcoin isn't going to be stuck at the 4 megabyte block weight forever. So there's there's things already in the works that will you know increase that another fifty percent, and um, then they can always uh, raise the block weight limit uh, with a soft fork. Uh, they can't change like the base block size of one megabyte, but they can make like the signature data section of the block um, heavier. So uh, th there's there's all sorts of things that. Um, will be scaled on layer one and it's just completely wrong to say layer one is not scaling it's going to scale when it needs to scale there's going to be a dynamic fee market between lightning network and the main chain even between side chains and the main chain so um yeah this uh it's a little bit too early to poo poo on just letting the market uh work with the fees okay gotcha and then um and I, I agree with all of those points, Ansel. I feel like uh, I feel like this is probably a good place to wrap up. Uh, Ansel, do you have any kind of clothing clothes <laughs> Do you have any kind of closing thoughts here? If you could, you know, speak to a predominantly Ethereum listenership and and kind of um, you know talk to them about why Bitcoin is special in in a couple uh, in a couple of phrases here. You know, how would you do that? It's all about monetary confidence, and that is achieved by not changing the code once you've changed the code it's almost too late to uh you know get a mulligan on that it's it's already been done and it's proved that it can be done so um uh yeah and it's it's about monetary conference and that that stems from a whole lot of stuff in in bitcoin proof of work it, it stems from um the fixed supply and all of that so i think we covered quite a bit of that oh and the last thing is um don't think an attack on your network is going to be obvious, right? Like if people like me, a conspiracy theorist type, might say uh, 
Roger Ver or um, Craig Wright is actually conspiring with government against Bitcoin, you know, it's possible because the, the these things aren't going to be like they're not going to come out and say, I'm from the state and I'm here to attack your network. No, it's going to be very, very subtle and it will seem real. Like it'll seem like Vitalik just maybe changes his opinion and uh, now he's going to argue with his obtuse language on the other side of the argument. So, um, yeah, just be aware that attacks aren't always obvious. I would say that um, <laughs> if you were to compare communities, um, one of the biggest differences between the Bitcoin community and pretty much all other communities is just general general paranoia and adversarial thinking. Yes, yes. Right? So I, I don't think that that can be re- replicated by lots of developers building on top of your system. Having people that are very conservative, very adversarial thinking, um, and, you know, are really looking out for how could this go wrong rather than how could this go right? I think that those incremental different changes in how they make um, decisions um, independently are very, very important. And I think that conflating both systems because they appear to be deflationary and appear to be decentralized is a huge mistake. Last, you know, last but not least, uh, with all the censorship that's happening on Patreon and, you know, people like Jordan Peterson and Dave Rubin looking at cryptocurrency as a solution, none of them are saying, oh, here's my Ethereum address. They're saying, here's my Bitcoin address and asking questions and tweeting about Bitcoin. That in itself is proof of network effects right there. And, you know, I just don't think that that's going to stop. Yeah, it just takes one bad adversary to screw up your whole system. So it doesn't matter even if you want to believe like this. I had a back and forth with Vitalik on Twitter and um, he, his rationale was like adversaries don't exist or, or no, that's not going to happen. Well, there's adversaries in the real world and all you need is one bad adversary to ruin your whole, you know, happy Dow that you had. So, um, yeah, you got to plan for the worst. Absolutely. And I would say that generally speaking, um, my impression on most people in the Ethereum community and even my co-host David is that they're not adversarial thinkers. Um, you know, as long as I've known David, um, his opinion on a lot of different coins has changed. Um, at the beginning, it's always been, oh, what can go wrong? Like nothing's going to go wrong. It's going to be fine. Um, and I don't think that's the right way to think about it. So if that's how you're thinking about these systems, um, I would highly consider, you know, kind of rethinking it. And that's the basis for monetary confidence is that if, if it does go wrong and, oh, we can just patch it later. Well, no, cause you just destroyed all monetary confidence in your system. So, um, the value will not be accruing to your network. It'll be accruing to Bitcoin most likely. All right. Antle. Thanks again for coming on the show. Um, hopefully we can do a third one. Uh, you know, I had a lot of fun kind of uh, bouncing um, back and forth. Six months ago, I never thought I'd uh, I'd be sitting across from you and doing a podcast. So uh, this is very cool for me. Yeah, I hope I added something. I mean, it, it was just, it was fun to talk to you and, and meet you face to face here a little bit. And um, uh, yeah, I look forward to hearing a response or, or something. I, I love your guys' show. So keep up the good work and um yeah, we'll, you'll, we'll, I'll have to have you on my show sometime. Awesome. Well, can't wait, and uh, thanks again. So what would you guys think of that? 
Like I said, I wish I would have had some better notes um, for my arguments to keep them all straight and stuff. But the bottom line is Bitcoin can build monetary confidence because its properties are basically set and especially its consensus properties where Ethereum is not, you know, hard forking all the time. You'll have bugs, etc. Now, that's not a way to build uh, rock solid monetary confidence. You could build um, an app or a platform for apps, but you're not going, your token is not going to have a monetary premium. Your token is going to symbolize more of a coupon or, um, some sort of access token. And it's, it's, it itself is not going to be any sort of medium of exchange or unit of account. Uh, so take that for what it's worth. Last thing, I just want to remind you guys to sign up for the report, bitcoinandmarkets.com forward slash report commentary and charts about uh, market analysis that's going on here in Bitcoin. Also, I have a new merch partnership. I forgot to mention this at the beginning of the show, but so Brady, he's been on the community chat episodes a couple times. Um, Really nice guy, really into the lightning stuff. He does the Citizen Bitcoin podcast, uh, but he has a new shop where he's selling stickers. And if you guys use my link, then I will get a little bit uh, from from him selling the stickers. So anyway, check that out. Link in the show notes. So you can support the show while you're getting a few stickers. All good things. That's all I got for today. See you guys next time. Peace. <laughs>